Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me on another episode of Get Into It with Gila. This week, I really honestly, truly had the privilege of interviewing Esther Woodruff. You guys may know her from Instagram as Incredifall, and I actually just purchased my own Incredifall, which is exciting. Um, I hate wearing a wig, so it's just anything that makes it easier is really awesome. So thank you, Esther, for doing that. Um, at, you'll listen in on the interview, but there's something so special about what she's doing with this with this wig, and it's not just for money, and it's really not anything to do with money, and it's just really amazing to see people like that that are selfless and looking to do good in the world. Um, I, I just wanted to put a disclaimer out there that this is a really emotional interview. Um, it was painful for me to hear and painful for me to think about over the course of the week we inter- we we recorded last week so um listeners discretion as advised um you'll hear Esther's story and you'll hear her decision to have surgery based on the gene mut- mutation that she was diagnosed with but um I think for a lot of us Jewish Ashkenazi women it's a hard pill to swallow um it is for me at least and it's definitely an empowering interview. It's something important to listen to. There's so many different layers and angles of this interview, why she did it, how she feels in her body now, how to make peace with your body, how to develop positive body image. Is it more than that? Is it is it looking deeper than your skin? I don't know. I want you to think about that. It's a, it's It was just really moving, and I, I needed the week to process it <laughs> before putting it out. Um but I, I know you'll enjoy, and um, all feedback is welcome. I would love to hear from you. And I also wanted to say that if you are looking to make peace with food and you're not sure where to turn, um, I will be starting to get together a group of women to do some an, an online course of intuitive eating and health at every size, and it will most probably be an eight-week course where we'll meet every other week, and there will be a, a a WhatsApp chat, a private WhatsApp chat, and you'll get daily or weekly support or whatever you need. And hopefully I will set up accountability buddies as well. So if you're interested in that, please email me at gilaglassberg18 at gmail.com. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, subscribe to the podcast, check out my YouTube channel, as well as my Instagram, gila.glassberg.intuitiverd. And without further ado, let's get to the show. Hi everyone and welcome to my podcast, Get Into It with Gila. I know you're going to love the content here because you will gain inspiration, powerful tools and insights, and valuable knowledge. If you want more of this, please visit my website at www.gilaglassberg.com or visit me on Instagram at gilaglassberg. I'm Gila Glassberg, a registered dietitian and intuitive eating counselor. I've come to realize by counseling many, many women that this work is much deeper and greater than food and body image. It's the bigger picture challenges we face of love, belonging, acceptance, what our true values and goals are, noticing them, addressing them, and gaining skills to move forward. If you have been struggling with what your life's purpose is, or you just feel stuck in general and don't know what's holding you back, this podcast will enlighten and inspire you to take action and move forward. This podcast is about other women in the 21st century who feel that losing weight will fix all their problems or somehow meet their unmet needs. Okay. 
Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Get Into It with Gila. I'm Gila Glassberg, registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor. And today I have with me Esther Widroff. Hi, Esther. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining us. It's like, my pleasure. I, I admire you from afar. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Where do you live? What do you do? Oh, where I live is uh, really dependent on where my husband's job is. We okay. currently live in Waterbury, Connecticut. It is a phenomenal, incredible community. Um, I've had I've had the opportunity to live in several communities now. Um, my husband is an active duty clinical psychologist for the U- U.S. Navy. So we move every like two to three years. Um, but Waterbury, I have to say, is it's home. I cannot imagine leaving this place. Um, we love it. If anyone ha- like wants to come for a Shabbos, I would highly recommend it. It's like the best small, close-knit, out-of-town community, but like Muncie's an hour and a half away. Flatbush is like an hour and 45, two hours. Um, so like you can always just hop on the highway and be in town if you want to, but like you get the luxury of like a really amazing out-of-town community at the same time. Wow, that's so nice. My 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 little brother, you did yeah, he went to Waterbury. Oh yeah. Yeah. Remember sure Keelish? He like loved course. it. Oh my gosh, loved of it. course. Yeah. It really the community really, really cares about each other and like looks after each other. And um it's it's just such an incredible place to live. I'm so happy here at Baruch Hashem. Wow. Wow. I, I want to just ask you, um, before, I guess, before we hear about what you do, how, sure, sure. like, I guess you knew your husband was going to do that when you guys got married, right? No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Um, actually we will be married 10 years in January. Wow. He's been in the military for, I want to say this is his fifth year. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, he did not have any plans. My husband is from Flatbush, like born and bred, um, typical, one second. Oh, my computer just did something weird. Um, Nobody like can my, see us. So we're good. <laughs> no, no, I know. I just didn't want the audio to disconnect. Um, he was like a typical, like, yeshiva boy. And he knew he wanted to get a PhD in clinical psychology. Um, so he started doing that. And I would say, like, in his third year, he came home and he was like, oh, Esther, someone from the Air Force did this presentation. It was so interesting. And I was like, absolutely not. We are not doing that. That wouldn't be fair to kids. Like it's just not happening. Um, And we never spoke about it again. And I don't know, I guess like a couple of years later, I was expecting our second daughter. um, And we really wanted to move out of Brooklyn we didn't know where we wanted to go I'm from Atlanta originally so I Mm. am an out-of-towner me too me too I'm an out-of-towner yeah (laughs) so I guess like he one day was like he was applying basically in your final year of your PhD it's very similar to like residencies and the match process Mm -hmm. so you have to apply to different they're called internships but it's, it's really like I said residency and you have to rank order and um, if you match with the people that match with you, then that's where you're going. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. So he mentioned to me again, I think he like, he put on the outliers of like salary wise. And there was, there was one that just paid an astronomical amount more than the others. And I was like, Mati, what's the outlier? Like, what is this? Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, it's funny. It's the military. Um, so like we joked about it. And then he had said that like, he knew of someone else from that was in it. And, um, 
we knew that the internship would be in Baltimore, which is a firm community. Mm-hmm. And originally it was only a four-year commitment. So not about the money, but like we just started thinking like, hey, this is a really structured way of getting to leave Brooklyn with, um, with career security and financial security in that regard, since I had been working full-time up until that point and he was in school. Um, and we knew that our first stop would be in a normal firm community that we had friends in. So we basically asked a million and one Shilas to different Rebellion who have given stock on um, military ordeals and stuff like that. And we spoke to a bunch of from military families um, and we sort of were just like, okay, let's like, let's take this little bit of a leap of faith. We'll get to see Baltimore. We knew that we would have to move a year later because that was part of the contract. Um, but with the Navy, like all of the really, really big naval hospitals and clinics are near big cities mm-hmm. and where there's a big city, there's a Jewish community. Mm-hmm. So we knew that like, regardless of where we would get transferred, it was another opportunity to get to see another from community. Um, so that's sort of what happened. And everything just really fell into place. My husband loves his job. He's very good at what he does. Um, on a day-to-day basis, I'm not the average military wife in the sense that like, we don't live on base. Um, my mm. kids go to from day school, like, but my husband does wear camos to work every day. He does travel. He can be deployed. Um, and every sense when it comes to that, the government owns my husband, um, and what they say he needs to do. So I had absolutely no idea to answer the question. I never That's thought crazy. it was something That's literally that, crazy. <laughs> it really is. There are days where I'm like, why? Like, how did this happen? But I have to tell you, there are so many brachos that have come out of this way more brachos than any sort of hardship. Um, and we like, we wouldn't have ended up here in Waterbury if it wasn't for the military. It never would have been on my radar. Um, and like I said, we really, even though my husband is still active duty and there's no guarantees for how long we're staying or what happens next, like we are 1000% confident that this, this ultimately will be um, where we decide to settle down forever um, whenever my husband does get out of the military. Did your husband have like a calling, like something about that presentation must have like pulled him in. So he's, he's always been the type of person that really cares about the underdog um, and wants to be able to make a difference in people's lives. And I would say that like all good clinical psychologists do make a difference in people's lives. They mm-hmm. help out, you know, on big things and small things and day-to-day life and whatever. Um, however, in the military, you have, I don't even know the numbers, so I'm not going to even quote, but hundreds of thousands of members. Um, and I think in the Navy, it's like a few hundred psychologists, something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. I don't even think it's a thousand. My husband may correct me after all of this and be like, you're so wrong. I know that it's a minority though. Mm -hmm. So it really presented an opportunity to have a big impact on people's lives who desperately need it. Um, Mm -hmm. During my husband's internship in Walter Reed in Bethesda, uh, he had patients that literally came back from war with limbs missing and like learning to process what they've gone through and severe, severe, severe PTSD that, you know, none of us should ever experience. Um, so I think the calling was more to like really make that difference and, and to be able to help these people rehabilitate and um, carry on with normal lives, you know, moving forwards. That's crazy. And how did your parents and your husband's parents respond? Um, I don't think they were so excited. 
Um, I think they, they were supportive in the, in like what my husband wanted to do and they were proud, but I would say that my parents as well as my in-laws were nervous about what it would mean. And like I said, my husband is deployable. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're, the possibility of him getting called out for six to nine months at any given time is always there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think they worried about me. Um, but Baruch Hashem, in the end, they've only been vocally supportive. And it, that's all that like we could really ask for. So I guess that's the best response possible. Um, yeah. I'm sure that they have their own insecurities, but mm-hmm. they don't voice them to us. Wow. Wow. It's, yeah. a, it's crazy because like, I thought, I don't know why, but I thought you were going to say like, yeah, he had this dream forever. And like, I know, no. so like, not, so not it really, it's funny though, because now, like I said, he loves what he does. Um, and I think it takes like a very special person to be in any sort of clinical field at all. Um, even with what you do and when you're interacting with different people, and not bringing that home and not like having that clinical guard, I like to say, Mm -hmm. but still being able to be like highly effective in what you do. Um, I would never be able to do it. I I like, I know myself, I would be laying in bed at night and still thinking about my patients. Mm -hmm. Um, but Baruch Hashem, he's, he's able to handle it, which makes me a lot more comfortable with the position. Um, because like I said, now in his most recent, like, position he's not really seeing people who have been blown up but um mm-hmm. so he's still seeing sailors that have very serious problems but not to the same degree um but even so with two small children like it, it concerned me originally like is he really ready for this mm-hmm. and how will this impact um raising our children and our home life and Baruch Hashem, he's handled it beautifully so it's not anything I really worry about anymore yeah, he. De- I mean, I don't know your husband, but he must be a very special person to like yeah. hold space Thank for so God. many people and such big problems. And yeah, like I said, I, I know myself, I would never, ever, ever be able to do it. Like ever. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So we know about your husband. So tell us about you. What do you, what do you do? So before the military, um, I was, I worked in like the administrative field um, and really liked all of that. I have a degree in political science. Um, when my husband started his PhD, I decided I did not want to go straight into law school. I didn't want to do like two people in full-time mm-hmm. grad school. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went into the administrative world and loved that. And then when he commissioned with the military and we were moving, um, I just had my second daughter, Perry. So I sort of transitioned into, into the stay-at-home mom role. Um, and I loved that opportunity also. Um, and then now most recently I've been a teacher for preschool kids, preschool aged kids. And that sort of landed in my lap shortly after we moved to Waterbury. My youngest was like 20 months old and really ready to get out of the house. And there was an opening and I thought, you know, worst case scenario, I don't like it, but best case scenario, I'm getting my 20 month old out of the house. And she's like going crazy and was crying every day when we dropped off her older sister at school. Um, and it turned out that I actually loved it. It is such like a rewarding field. Um, and it's very funny because I always imagined like, if you, you know, if you have your own small children at home and then you're teaching all day and then you're coming back to your kids, but it's so different when they're not your kids. <laughs> um, so that is what I do now. Um, and then I started Incredible about two years ago, which has taken on another um, 
portion of my life. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure. I, I mean, yeah. I want. So I just want to say about the little kid thing. I, my, I have a two and a half year old, Nehemiah, and I always think this when I drop him off at the babysitter. I mean, at, at his playgroup, which is in yeah. Laura's house, and she also has two little kids. They're not in the playgroup, but I think like, how does she do it? I don't, it's just so different. It's so, it's so different. I like, I'm so excited each morning that I walk into my classroom and I see these 17, two and three year olds smiling at me and saying, Mora, Mora. It is not the same as mommy, mommy. Right, right, right. um, At all. They're, I don't know. It's just so different. (laughs) It's very hard to explain. Even the most difficult kids. And Baruch Hashem, my class this year is not so difficult. Um, But it's just totally different. I think maybe knowing that they're all going home to someone else at the end of the day um, has something to do with it, but also just like seeing like the joy in their eyes when they learn something new and they're so excited to share about it Um, and whatever. It's just, it's nice. And kids behave really differently for their moras. Oh, 100%. Yeah. yeah. I I mean, with my five-year-old, she is a very spunky little girl and when her mower tells me that she listens the first time and she's the best cleaner upper and she is just I'm like who are you talking about at yeah. home she's like I'm nervous she's gonna burn her house down right, right. <laughs> I totally I totally get that I'm always so <laughs> yeah Baruch Hashem, I love my kids and I just me too I love but... the moras thank you to the moras that, that watch <laughs> right? my kids when I'm I not. feel the same way to my kids moras because Baruch Hashem for the that gap in the day yeah um, yeah (laughs) seriously so okay so incredible tell us what like how did I know what it is but how did it come to be so uh, well first tell us what it is for people okay so incredible um I like to call it a passion project um it's something that I thought of for myself it is basically a 360 degree halo hat fall um and I made one for myself and I'm wearing one I am wearing one. Wearing right now, one of okay. course. I wear mine all day, every day. It it's just like it works. Um, especially as a mower, I don't always I don't want to wear a full shade doll or even a full fall. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, you kind of just throw it on and go. Mm-hmm. Um, so, anyways, I showed it to a neighbor of mine one Shabbos, and she was like, That is incredible. I need one. And her husband looked at me and was like, You could sell this and make a lot of money. And I I pro- I remember this conversation. He still makes fun of me to this day. And I was like, I don't really want to make the money. Like, I want to just like make them. Um, and behind the scenes, when all of this started to happen is um, one of my first cousins was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I had sort of had this inkling of a suspicion that um, that it was more than just one cousin. I mean, I knew that several of my aunts had had breast cancer, but I'm the youngest of my generation, female cousin wise. Um, and I have several older cousins that are well into their forties, late forties, even my father's, I think the third to youngest of nine kids. So I have first cousins that are like in their sixties. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, four of my five aunts had had breast cancer. Um, and I sort of just put it off in the back of my mind. And I was like, okay, they grew up so long ago. Like it was just a weird coincidence that they all got it. None of my cousins got it. And I'd even asked my OBGYN um, about genetic testing when I got married. And he was like, you're 20 years old. Even if you tested positive, no one will operate on you. No one will do anything. You're so young. And I know you, 
if you were to test positive, you would say, I want a double mastectomy, take out my ovaries, take out my tubes. And he's like, you Mm -hmm. don't have kids yet. You're Mm -hmm. so low risk. Mm -hmm. I don't recommend doing it. So, okay. Fast forward. So one second. So I just want to like explain this to the listeners because I've been to my own doctors. You don't want to get tested, even though, even though if you find out that you are a carrier for something, you're not going to operate because you need those organs to have children. And even though it puts you at a higher risk, you're going to wait until childbearing. So that's like the, the basic understanding. Um, there's a million and one workarounds. Um, you could technically have the surgeries and still have children. If you were to choose to go through IVF, let's Mm -hmm. say, Mm -hmm. um, and in and of that itself, there's a million childs that, that need to be asked when it comes to genetic testing and whatever. Um, yeah, it, it's it's very invasive. These are lifelong body altering surgeries. There's no turning back from them. Um, and my doctor just felt at 20 years old and as a new bride that like I was not in the headspace to be making these permanent decisions. Um, so I put it off. I was like, okay, if my doctor doesn't think I need it, then I'm not going to worry about it. So then we're going to fast forward seven years. Mm -hmm. And my first cousin who's next in line age wise, only four or five years older than me, um, is diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. And at this point I freak Mm -hmm. out because I'm like, Mm -hmm. okay, it's not my aunt's anymore. Now it's on Mm -hmm. my generation. Right. I go back to a new doctor here in Connecticut and I express my concerns and she's like, you're a hundred percent right to be concerned. It's time to test. So Erev Yom Kippur. After you have two kids already. Yeah, right? I have two kids. Yes. Um, Erev Yom Kippur of 2000 and I want to get these years right. 2018, 2018, um, I sat in an oncologist's office and I was delivered the news that I tested positive for a BRCA gene mutation. Um, and for anyone who's not familiar what it is, um, it's a gene mutation that is unfortunately incredibly common among Ashkenazi Jews. Um, the average national risk is about one in 500. Um, in Ashkenazi men and women, it's one in 40. Wow. So when you go to Shalom Chavez, and this is like how my life changed in an instant, I like I stopped walking into big rooms of people and just seeing people. I started seeing like, who else has it? Who else has it? Because no oh. one's talking about it. Mm-hmm. Like no one I knew had been diagnosed with it. How like it's such a prevalent thing in our community and no one is talking about it. One in 40 will have the BRCA gene or one in 40 will have be diagnosed with breast cancer. No, one in 40 will carry the gene mutation. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a BRCA1 gene mutation and a BRCA2 gene mutation. They carry different risks depending on um, if it's one or two, and then they also, a genetic cancer will factor in other, um, things in your life that could increase your chance. So in my personal life, both of my children are the product of fertility treatments anyway. Um, and certain fertility treatments increase your risk of, um, uterine ovarian types of cancers. So between my BRCA mutation, um, and just my general risk analysis, I came back at like, a 95 to 98% chance likelihood of developing <laughs> breast cancer in my lifetime, which is, again, like, again, it, this is era of Yom Kippur. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, my husband, we like literally is looking at the clock before the genetic cancer came in. 
because he has to get home to prepare for Yom Kippur. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like the wind was completely knocked out of me. I, I just like, I never expected the results to be positive. Right. I never did. I sort of like, and it's silly to think this way, but I sort of felt like I'd had my struggles with fertility and loss. Um, like there's no way that this is another Nisayan that Hashem's putting in front of me. This is like, it's too big to even comprehend. Um, but it was positive. My husband was incredibly supportive and my family was incredibly supportive. And it's a Yom Kippur that I'll never forget. Um, but anyways, how this ties into Incredifall is that I, since I was teaching, I knew I wasn't going to have surgery in the middle of the school year. I didn't think it would be good for my own children. I didn't want to leave my classroom unattended. Also, again, these risks um, become greater as you get older. So my risk for ovarian cancer really didn't become a huge factor. Um, they wouldn't really worry so much until like 40s, 50s. Mm-hmm. And then for breast cancer, they look at the earliest diagnosis in the family. So in my family, it was like 35 and I was turning 29 in, in the following spring. So I knew I, it wasn't like I need to have this done tomorrow or I'm going to have breast cancer, but it was like, I need to have this done soon. I don't need to. I decided that I needed to. Um, so incredible was again, on like on my mind and my neighbors were begging me, you know, to make it for them. And I needed something to absorb all of my nervous energy and extra time. And I also wanted something as a schuss for myself to mm-hmm. pour my heart into. Um, and hopefully, you know, as a schuss for my surgeries to go well. So I decided, okay, I'm going to make the incredible and I'm going to sell it at cost. Okay. Wait one second. Let me just interrupt you for a second. Are you yeah. very handy? Are you very good? with Yes. Hands? Yes. Okay. I'm an extremely crafty person. My grandmother taught me how to sew on the machine when I was 10 years old. Um, my like, I I'm always doing something crafty. Like whenever someone needs help with something or like a hairband or a bow or anything like that, I'm, I'm usually like, I'm the one who gets a text at like 11 o'clock at night. Like, can I borrow your glue gun? Can you help me glue something? Um, you know, my daughter's dresses are up. Can we fix the seam? So and you're very good with your hands. You're very creative. Yeah. Very, you very. Think of that, like the band with the hair, right. was all your, yeah, it was all. Yeah, completely. Um, it, it also tied into, again, like with being a Mora, um, I wasn't so comfortable working all day in a full shadol and, changing kids who, you know, have accidents or Mm -hmm. spilled their lunch on them and like constantly like pushing Mm -hmm. hair out of my face. Um, So I came up with the idea because I, and I also didn't like how if you wear a headband fall with a beanie and then you take the beanie off, you have like that bunch in the back and um, yes. Yeah. So I was able to make a prototype and then I made it for my neighbors and tested it out for quite a few months before deciding, okay, I'm going to do this. And I never imagined ever, 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 um, that it would turn into what it has. I mean, we don't, I don't advertise anywhere. I don't push sales. Um, it's sort of like, if you find me and you chase after me a little bit, and that is because, you know, my, my work life comes not first, my family life comes first, and then I have my work life. So um, it has to balance itself out. Um, since again, this is not something that I do for Parnassa at all. Um, but to date, I think we've, we've shipped to 
every continent except Antarctica. Oh my God, that's <laughs> um, crazy. And, yeah, I mean, I've gotten an order from Malaysia. And when that came in, I was just like, how did you even hear of me? Like, like I said, I don't advertise anywhere. How are you hearing of me? Wow. Um, and such incredible stories from women who um, were becoming from and just weren't in a position that they wanted to spend $2,000 on a shade right. and weren't right. sure. Like it's a huge step, you know, yeah. to start covering your hair fully oh, yeah. huge. Even yeah. I was raised from, from birth. And mm-hmm. even when I got married, it was a huge step, but huge. Um, I mean, yes, I hate covering my hair. I hate yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. So being able to be a part of these journeys and like, I guess, understandably when we're like, okay, it's a human hair, it's, it's a human hair product. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, our most expensive one is $250. Right. It's, it's a lot. How, less. That's, how do you keep the price so cheap? So this, this is a tricky question to answer because I, I respect all other Shaito brands and I totally understand the necessity of making a Parnassa. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are some brands that are not happy with the fact that I'm not marking up, mm-hmm. um, which is again, goes into why I don't advertise and why I don't push sales um, out of that respect level for other companies. And also um, just like, you know, since we consider every piece custom order, because every, like when, if an order comes in, there's not a massive inventory because there's no overhead. So it's not like I'm investing my own money into this mm-hmm. business. So if an right. order comes in, um, there's usually, we'll have the hair for, I would say enough hair to make like two in, in each color. And then once a new order comes in, then we'll order more hair to replace that one. Um, so since we do it that way, we don't, we don't accept returns. <laughs> when you say we though, do you have like a team? Like, do you have a system? So it's, it's right now it's mainly me just because of Corona, but there are some incredible people, a few incredible people behind the scenes who have volunteered a lot of their time, whether it's customer service or preparing shipping labels, um, or even just like batching up, getting enough hair to make sure, okay, this is enough for one fall and this is enough for another fall or printing out order forms. Um, There are different people who I'm close with who understood what I was doing and wanted to be a part of it. Um, Um, And they'll they'll name, remain nameless because that was their whole thing they wanted to. Um, my husband, definitely my husband, I put to work sometimes. Um, (laughs) he is like, he, he'll just like sit in our studio and just like, whatever I need. Like he's been so helpful during Corona because again, I haven't had a lot of people here. People are either home with their kids. Um, Mm -hmm. I personally am immunocompromised, um, as a result of one of my surgeries. So I didn't want people in my house um but yeah there are definitely I wouldn't it's funny because like I don't think of it as a business because that's not what it is to me um so I don't think of like having employees right I I would say I have just incredible people who who feel the same way and also like want to give back and um without them it wouldn't be possible and they know who they are okay so I want to ask you a few questions but I just I want to understand the whole thing so first of all okay let's get back to the the BRCA so yeah so you you decided you were going to have surgery. Yes. I was given multiple options. There's options for surveillance, which is basically you just go in for an MRI a few times a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they find anything, then they act very aggressively. Um, 
I didn't like that option because to me, it's waiting for something to happen. I don't mm-hmm. want to wait to be diagnosed, and, mm-hmm. um, especially with my husband's career. Like what if he's deployed right and now? How am I doing this? Right. Or if we move again, how, mm-hmm. you know, I have living in Connecticut, I have access to Yale and they have one of the best cancer hospitals in the country. I kind of felt like Hashem put me exactly where I needed to be um, with an incredible resource, Yale, um, and incredible surgeons who are top in the field. Um, and knowing me and my personality, you know, my doctor was right when I was 20 years old. If I had found out, I would have, I probably would have made these very hasty decisions. Um, the good news is, again, because I found out Yom Kippur time and it was the school year, I waited until summer to have surgery. Um, and it gave me a good eight months to really fully, or what I thought fully, understand what I was getting myself into. And because I was young or considered young to be having these surgeries at the time, um, every step of the way, my surgeons plays, played devil's advocate with me to make sure, again, that psychologically, emotionally, physically, I understood what I was signing myself up for. Um, and it again, I think it's one of those things that like, until you go through it, you can't fully comprehend. Mm -hmm. However, Baruch Hashem, I would say also though, um, and I hope that this doesn't downplay anyone else's experience. This is only my personal experience is that the recovery wasn't nearly as bad as I painted it out to be in my head. Don't get me wrong. It was was horrific. (laughs) It was really, um, I chose to undergo a prophylactic double mastectomy with deep flap reconstruction. So what that means in easier terms um, is that I had my natural breasts removed and I used my own abdominal tissue to reconstruct new breasts. Um, There's always the option for implants. I personally just did not want to go the silicone implant route. Um, I liked the idea that it's my own body that I'm using um, with deep flap reconstruction. If your body's going to reject the transplant, it happens usually in the first 48 hours. Whereas with silicone implants, it can happen much later on or they can be recalled. They have to be redone every like seven to 10 years. Um, And at the time there was like this major silicone implant recall, which just like sort of supported my, my want to use my own body. Um, it is a major, 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 major surgery. I was in the OR for about 14 hours. Um, oh my God. Yeah. My poor husband really, um, I can't even imagine. And like, we've talked about it, but like, I can't imagine what it was like for him to sit for 14 hours, you know, waiting to find out. Um, and it's such a long surgery because they, in order for tissue to live in the body, it needs to be hooked up to a blood source. Mm -hmm. So, you know, first they do the removal um, and then a plastic surgeon comes in and reconstructs. So I have like a 20 inch incision from hip to hip where they took out tissue to reconstruct um, my chest and they had to like shave down one of my ribs to hook up the the veins to an artery. Um, Wow. Yeah. The recovery, like I said, I was in the hospital for about a week following surgery and I I've never experienced pain like the recovery the first week. Um, 
even while being like totally medicated up. You can't imagine, like, it's so hard to even explain. Um, did you have a C-section? Did you ever have a C-section? I did. My first was an emergency C-section. It's no comparison. I, I even remember when I first met with my plastic surgeon, I was like, oh, so it's like a C-section, but a bigger scar. And he like laughed at me. He's like, Val, no, he's like, it's not like a C-section. The scar is where my C-section scar would be. But again, hip to hip. And they're not just opening in a C-section. They, you know, you cut through everything and then sew you back up. Mm -hmm. This is cutting through and then removing a very substantial amount of tissue mm -hmm. and then sewing you back up. So like you're hunched over right. because oh you're missing God. that huge gap of skin. Wow. Um, I had drains on me for a couple of weeks. Um, I ended up, uh, I ended up actually with like a very rare complication, but of course, you know, love complications. Mm -hmm. Um, Two weeks post-op, I ended up back in the hospital with sepsis, which was very scary. Also, my, mm -hmm. again, my poor husband. Um, but now I'm this June. This So this was June of 2019 that I had the major, major surgery. Um, and then the following January, so this past January 2020, I had my second revision surgery. Um and this was, the second one was not, it had nothing to do with preventative measures. It was clear, it was specifically cosmetic um, in the sense that even the best plastic surgeon, when you're reconstructing using tissue in the OR, it could look symmetrical, but like after tissue settles, you're, you're not always symmetrical. And mm -hmm. um, the idea is just to get the body looking more like itself. Um, so I've had two surgeries now and Baruch Hashem, I'm, I'm not in pain. <laughs> I recovered very well from the second surgery and in clothing, you would never know that I had any sort of surgery at all. Um, and that's one thing that like, I think is a huge bracha that like, it's not like I'm wearing my scars for everyone to see. Um, but it is it was and still remains to be an adjustment coming out of such major body altering surgery. Um, and especially at a young age, I mean, I'm, I'm 30 now, Baruch Hashem, um, but still what I consider, you know, relatively young to, I'm 30 also. Yeah. Yeah. To, to undergo such major and like I said, permanent um, body changes. Okay, I have to just absorb and process what you said. Of course. That's that's crazy. Like that's that's insane. insane. But the, the the silver lining is though that now I went from a ninety eight percent lifetime risk to less than two percent risk. Right. Um, and the, and BRCA doesn't have any. Like, were you concerned about? Like, are you still concerned about ovarian cancer or any? So yes, I I have more surgeries ahead of me. Um because the ovarian cancer risk comes later in life, I don't have to face those right now. Um, it's going to be a, another two surgeries. Um, the first one would be to remove my fallopian tubes because ovarian cancer very often origi originates in the tubes. And then a few years after that, um, we will take out my ovaries. That'll be closer to like 35 though. Um, Surprisingly though, these are the, the least invasive surgeries, but I think emotionally the hardest surgeries um, yeah. because losing my breast meant that I, I can't nurse a baby again. It's just physically impossible. Um, but the idea of not having fallopian tubes or ovaries, um, it's like, it's, it's very, 
in my case, at least it's very permanent there. It, it ends, you know, your childbearing years. Um, I've just, I've already gone through the fertility treatment life so many times um, that it's not something that I'm going to be doing again. Um, so that like, that's a much tougher pill to swallow. And it's funny because that, like you said, that surgery, you can't see it's completely internal. It, mm-hmm. it won't change my body. It won't other than like throwing me into menopause at 34, 35. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not anything that, that I would even be able to see on myself. It's more right. just the, like the knowing. So I want to, I want to talk about like body image when it comes to yeah. what I I want to, I want to delve into that in a second. I just want to say um, for you and for the listeners that I, I relate to what you're saying a lot because um, you, you, I think we discussed this like privately, my mother died of a uterine sarcoma mm-hmm. and her mother died of ovarian cancer. So, right. so our, so, and there's six girls in my family. So and right. Anyways, men could carry, right. Men, yeah. Right. I got my BRCA mutation from my father. Right. Definitively. And that's something well, that it was I, his sisters that, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was so undereducated when it came to this. I didn't even know that it was a thing. I right. thought you could right. only get it from your mother's. Right. Um, but my cousin and I have a identical mutation. Wow. Which prompted testing. Um, right. And her father has the same identical mutation. Um, so my father was even told that he doesn't even need to test. It's definitive. I got it from my right, father. Right. Right. Um, but again, that's like, uh, it's so when like, I thought that like I was educated and I was like, oh, I'm safe. It's no mm-hmm. big deal. Right. And then to find out that like, no, it's a huge deal. And it's a huge deal. Like I said, in specifically our community, mm-hmm. um, and nobody, is and nobody, that. nobody really did educate you. You kind of educated no. yourself. You kind yeah. Of- out of fear. Like, like crazy. I was, it's, it's still like, it's so hard because, okay, when I was diagnosed and I had surgery, there were maybe like five or six of my closest friends who knew mm-hmm. I was too scared to talk about it. And I was too scared because of these stigmas that exist in our community. Okay. So what were you scared of? I was afraid of, again, it's the obvious that if I have it, it means I could have passed it to my children. Right. Um, and that's, that's something that's still very, very difficult for me emotionally. Um, um, because I didn't know, and I asked the right questions, um, before going into fertility treatments. And there, there is a way, um, to test embryos when you're doing IVF to check for these things. Right. Um, right. but I, I wasn't told to, right. um, and there's, how a would you have known? There were right. really- so there's this tremendous guilt that I have that the reality is, is that I could have passed it on to one of my kids. Um, and that's, it's, I was afraid of being judged, um, by that. And I was also afraid of like, are people going to look at me differently? And if they know that I'm having surgery, the next time they see me, is it going to be like, oh, she looks the same or she looks different there. Mm -hmm. There were major, like major body image, um, you know, things I worried about, like, and, and Baruch Hashem, I decided to, to be more open about it um, after my own surgery about hearing a young woman, um, I believe in Archisarl, who was diagnosed with breast cancer and turned out to be BRCA positive and leaving behind six kids. And just thinking like, this is so crazy. This is right. so crazy because it's preventable. Right, like, right, it, right. 
how long can we like put our heads in the sand and pretend that this isn't an issue when it is and like the longer everyone's quiet the more women are going to die and that's mm-hmm. just reality i'm not mm-hmm. i don't mean to be dramatic here um but that's that's the reality um right. so i did i wrote an article for nasha magazine um that came out shortly before my second surgery so the second time around um it was a different experience because I had my entire community behind me. Um, and the the response was overwhelmingly positive to the point that I almost wish I had not been so secretive the first time around um, because I, I probably could have used the help more the first time around. Right. But, but my mother was incredible. She moved in with us for a month that summer mm-hmm. um, and the military was very understanding and let my husband take off for a few weeks. Um, Baruch Hashem, my kids have not they haven't asked me yet what it means for them. They're too little to understand. And honestly, um, it's a conversation that we'll have to have one day. Um, but from, you know, the expert advice that I've gotten from genetic counselors and my surgeons, as well as psychologists, it's just like, it's now is not the time you don't tell your kids something like that. And there's also the chance that they didn't get it. It's a 50, right. 50 chance. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, the reason for being so secretive was just because if no one, if no one was, if I didn't hear anyone else talking about it, it has to be for a reason, right? Whether right. that's logical or not, doesn't right. it doesn't right. matter. Right. On an emotional level, I was just like, do I really want people looking at my chest? Not that I think that like, that people really do. But if you know that someone just had major surgery and like, right. there are a couple of people who have said to me like, oh, wow, you're so lucky after nursing to have like, a boob job and I remember thinking like I can't believe you even use those words to me it is so not the same thing um call a cavo to anyone who decides to do that I'm not judging you but it is not the same thing right right I I have to say that when people don't know what to say they say they say a hundred percent in myself um, included myself included no, no I've also for sure had foot and mouth moments yes um but like it was comments like that that I was afraid of. So like, right, right. When, and like I said, I only got a couple of them, right. um, and they're from people that like I know care about me, right? Um, but it still was just like, okay, this is what I was afraid of. Like, why? Mm-hmm. Are, like, I don't want people talking about my body. I don't right. want people looking at my body. It, right. it was a, it's a struggle for me to even. I mean, I I didn't look in the mirror for weeks several several weeks because I was afraid of what I would see um I mean I'd been I'd been informed by my surgeons I'd seen pictures of other people who underwent the surgery they really really needed to make sure I understood the physical ramifications of what I was signing up for um but I was definitely too scared to look at myself so what was if you don't mind me asking what was your body image like prior to the surgery did you feel good about yourself comfortable so at that point in time, yeah, I actually did. Um, I was very athletic growing up, always played sports and like always very active. Um, I gained a ton of weight from fertility treatments with both of my girls, um, but through a healthy and realistic lifestyle, lost all of the fertility treatment weight um, and did feel really good about myself. Uh, um, I don't think I would say that I was in a position that I would ever imagine like such drastic alterations to my body. Um, and again, being younger, um, it was something that definitely scared me, but I felt like, what choice do I have? Like I, I can not do anything and wait until I'm diagnosed. Um, 
or I could do this and then have to just struggle mentally, you know, in the aftermath. Um, and like I said, it, it was a struggle. There are still days that it is a struggle, um, but with a very supportive family, um, I've been able to, Baruch Hashem, you know, really make it through in a good way. So what, what has that been like for you, like body image wise to so maybe feel different in your body or? Sure. I mean, I felt like a stranger in my body afterwards, right. Right. Um, especially when I had all of the drains um, and, you know, lines hooked up to me for a while and um, like very raw and br- I was black and blue and yellow and green. Um, and again, this wasn't just on my chest since I donated from my abdomen it was my, my lower body as well. Um, it was crazy. <laughs> um, it was really crazy to, to know that I did this to myself, no matter how good the outcome is. Right. Um, I signed up for it. I, you know, I jumped through every hoop to make the surgery happen. Like quote unquote, it was voluntary. Yeah, it was completely voluntary, completely voluntary. In a way, like like you said before, what choice did you have if you have a 6% chance of not getting breast cancer? Right, right. I mean, I could have, there are also, there's an alternative of taking a chemo pill, but Mm -hmm. um, I didn't want to do that. I I wanted to know that I was doing everything possible to protect myself so that I would be around for my children Mm -hmm. and that it would not be something my cousin who I mentioned was diagnosed has children two girls around the same age as mine um and Baruch Hashem my cousin has made a complete recovery she's in remission she's been in remission for a while um but it was very hard on her girls understandably um and her husband to see her so sick and um I didn't want that for my kids and I didn't want that for my husband I didn't want my husband worrying like you know, I know she's okay now, but what about next month or next mm-hmm. year or anything mm-hmm. like that? Um, so no, it was completely voluntary. I happen to have opted for the most invasive um, and body altering um, solution to the problem. And I think anyone who finds himself in this situation is entitled to their own opinion. And what worked for me may not work for someone else. Um, and there's no right or wrong answer. It's your own, your own life and your own body. And you have to like weigh out the circumstances. Um, so for me, it's, and I've still, even though I've gone through all of this now and I, you know, I had that crazy septic infection. And I remember thinking like, I'm fighting for my life because of a complication from surgery that I had to save my life. Like, are you, are you kidding me, Hashem? Like, really? It's crazy. Um, but through all of that, I would do it all over again. Mm -hmm. I would say that like my sense of self, um, drastically improved after my second surgery. Um, basically when they remove the abdominal tissue, you end up with these things called dog ears. And really they're just like really large love handles, if you will, because it's unproportionate. They're not taking tissue off of your hip because that's Mm -hmm. not what they need. They need just your stomach. So you end up with like, the effect is like a tummy tuck. You end up with a really, really, really flat stomach, but disproportionate hips that Mm -hmm. like jut out. So for the longest time, like clothing did not look normal on me. Um, and I, like, I hated getting dressed, um, and it had nothing to do with like my body size. It was just like, this isn't the body that Hashem gave me. This is a body that's been mutilated and Mm -hmm. amputated. Um, 
but after my second surgery, they basically, they cut off those, that excess skin um, and sew it together so that it goes away and you're more symmetrical. Um, I, unfortunately, I was not able to, to keep my nipples from surgery. Some people are candidates. I was not. So up until my second surgery, I did not have, and that was the hardest part for me um, and body image, because I, I felt like I don't look human. Mm-hmm. Like again, in clothing, I look human, completely human. Um, but my second surgery, I was able to have skin grafting done um, and recreate the breast in a way that looks anatomically correct. Mm-hmm. Um, so between those two things, that was really when I turned a corner um, and started feeling more like a woman again, more like myself again. Um, and that also like led into just physically like feeling better and feeling like, okay, you know, I've walked through fire, but like, this is why I did it. Um, mm-hmm. And now I'm at a point where like, I don't even really think about it so much. Like I said, there are definitely days that like you catch a glimpse in the mirror and there's a 22 inch long scary incision across my stomach. And I'm just like, wow, that's scary. But then I'm also like, Baruch Hashem for Sneas, no one sees it. Like right, you, right. you really, if you saw me on the street, you would never know that, I, that I've gone through these surgeries. You just wouldn't know. Um, so that's where I'm at now. And I'm a huge advocate for um, these informed choices. And I feel really, again, like going time back to the brachos that have come out of the military that um, our health insurance covered all of my surgeries without, mm-hmm. uh, I haven't, I mean, we really haven't paid a penny. Um, wow. Wow. Again, you know, it's, it's a health benefit of my husband being in the military. So you have mm-hmm. to weigh in that, um, you know, signing your life away, but like, right. I really feel like Hashem, Hashem had some plan and, and it goes back all the way to Mati hearing this presentation and leaving Brooklyn and um, going through Baltimore, now being here in Waterbury and um, having Yale and the incredible team of surgeons that like really have become like family, like wow. really, really have. It just so ends up that my plastic surgeon, as well as my um, my breast surgeon, the oncologist are both Jews. Wow. Um, and like just embraced us from this, like, if you know, from the second I met them, they just were so overwhelmingly um, warm and encouraging and so supportive. And they like loved that, that I was doing this. Um, And they both separately said to me, like, we've had so many cases of young women and they come in and it's already that they're diagnosed. And, um, you know, and they've, these surgeons were not from, um, but they just were like, we don't understand. Like, why, why is it so frowned upon in your community? And I'm like, beats me. <laughs> like, I, I feel the same way that you do. Um, I mean, I do understand that again, like even with mental health and whatever, we stigmatize things and mm-hmm. no one wants to talk about these things. Um, but the last like year and a half, any time that it's come up, I've been very happy to speak about it. Um, because if it helps even one person, then, you know, I feel like I've done my job as cliche as that sounds. Um, but it's something that we, we really need to be speaking about because it's not scary if you choose to take action. And, and like I said, you don't need to take action. Like right. I did. You, right. could, you could go for, for monitoring mm-hmm. um, and, you know, breast cancer when caught very early is very treatable. Right. 
Um, or, you know, like you said, there's the chemo pill or there's, there's implants. You don't have to like, there's options when you know, there's so many options. Um, but I think that the same way that like, I couldn't comprehend my test possibly being positive. I think people are so scared of the possibility that they don't even want to test it. Um, Which I totally, I totally get. I I totally get it too. I do totally get it. I just feel like at this point, and like, if you're a random, if you're a random person who has no breast cancer or ovarian cancer, anything like that running in their family, then yeah, no, there's no reason for you to be running to the doctor. Speak to your doctor about it. If you're an Ashkenazi Jew, speak. But like, if you don't have any, or even multiple cases, you know, I wouldn't worry. But like with me, I had four aunts. Right. My great, my grandmother, my great grandmother, right, and then a first cousin. Like you can't run from that anymore. Mm-hmm. That's that's mm-hmm. not that's not just the fluke that I let myself believe that it was. Um, and now Baruch Hashem, I don't have to worry anymore. I don't even have to go for monitoring because it's like the basically any monitoring that we would do, it would, there's nothing that could be there. I don't have breast tissue. There's mm-hmm. always like the teeniest, tiniest bit. They can't get everything out. Mm-hmm. Um so I still have to like self-check, but the likelihood of anything ever happening is so slim um, that I don't have to worry anymore. I don't have to worry about like living through what my cousins and my aunts did um, or Chassel and worse. I mean, right. we were very lucky that no one, no one in my family was nifter. Um, yeah. None of my aunts, at least my, my grandmother was. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of options and there's even like, there's incredible organizations like Sharsharet, who are, mm-hmm. is a Jewish organization that is 100% dedicated to helping Jewish women through breast or ovarian cancer. And you can contact them and speak to a genetic counselor, 100% anonymous. Right. Um, they were amazing. When I was having surgeries, they sent like a huge box of different toys for my children called their wow. busy box, just, wow. you know, um, and there's a social worker who I speak to as much as I want. And if I don't contact her, she contacts me every couple of weeks just to make sure there's just so many different organizations that are really there to help. Um, and people just need to utilize the resource. Well, you, I, I don't, Hey, there's so many things I could say. You're inc- <laughs> you are incredible for, for, for doing it, for doing what you felt you had to do for sharing it with the world because yeah we do we have to you're right we have to take our head out of the stand and is that the thing and um yeah I mean I I read you're kind of like preaching to the choir because this is what you know I my family has to deal with um but yeah there's plenty of people I'm sure who are listening or are like yikes I don't know if I even knew that I should you know, right. So that's why I said it's as simple as just asking, talk to your doctor about it um, or reach out to Shar Sharet and anonymously talk to them about it. And and even if you talk, that doesn't mean that you have to do anything. Right. Um, but I'll put their, I'll put their information in the show notes if people yeah, want to. Sure. Um, yeah. Just get, get the dialogue going because, you know, I, I think that we would all agree, especially with what we've all gone through um, with coronavirus and, and how often the Kuach Nefesh was spoken about um, mm-hmm. and how, I'd say it's like super central to our religious beliefs. And if that's what we believe, and we know that there are, we know that there's, there's a risk out there. Um, how do we not address it? Um, and like I said, it doesn't, 
it doesn't need to be the most invasive option. It, it right. could be something that's non-invasive at all, but then at right. least you're informed and at least you know, um, and you can take care of yourself. Um, I know that, like I said, my my like guiding light, if you will, was never wanting my husband or my children to see me fighting for my life. Um, and, uh, and now I don't have to worry about that. And okay. it's, yeah. Can I, can I just um, ask you about the body image thing for a minute? Yeah, sure. Like, I don't want to, I, I want people to like lean from what you went through. What are, what is like one or two tips that you could give that helped you? Like, obviously, yes, there are going to be days that you get triggered, but how have you worked through it? Um, it's a good question. Um, again, having, having a partner who's super supportive and very encouraging um, is definitely probably a cornerstone to it. Uh, my husband never made me feel like an alien, even though I felt like an alien. Um, it was always very encouraging of my physical recovery and progress. Um, and, you know, sort of helped me keep my eye on the light at the end of the tunnel, which is, um, which was my second surgery. And, and like I said, those physical changes after my second surgery helped me start to believe that one day I will feel like myself again. Um, I still, I don't have any feeling in my chest or my lower abdomen. Um, there's a possibility it'll come back, but as of right now, I'm completely numb. So that would, that's what I'd say is when I struggle, like, um, if one of my children hugs me and like, not, I feel their arms around my shoulders and I feel them near me, but it's not the same. So it's like these emotional reminders sort of, um, that then, you know, it's like, Oh, I can't feel my daughter holding me. I don't feel her embrace the same way. And then it's like, what, like it's sort of, it starts that like cycle of like, Oh, my body. And mm -hmm. this doesn't look right. And this doesn't feel right. And, um, whatever, but I'd say what, what helped me the most to put one foot in front of the other every single day is again, is knowing that I, I did all of this to protect myself and that I know that there will come a day that I'll be far enough removed. Um, and the, you know, the sensation will hopefully come back in my body and the scars will fade a little bit. Um, and knowing that this, you know, what I've just walked through, I did for myself and for my family. Um, and, you know, physical, physical pain goes away um, and wounds heal. And like I said, scars fade. Um, but I'm still myself. Um, as I mentioned, when I am fully dressed, I look and feel like myself. Um, and staying mentally in that position of my body may have changed. Um, I may not feel the same way. I may not totally look the same way. Um, but mentally knowing that nothing can change me and who I am um, is, is, I think, also this like really important factor because I feel like if you lose yourself mentally, it's just like, how do you get back up? But, right, right. Um, but again, I think that in my case, like having parents and family and, and like even my mother-in-law who's so encouraging and so supportive, um, having this like the system of support from diagnosis of the mutation through um, surgery and even the surgeries that lay ahead of me um, has really helped me. And 
that's something that I had to lean into. Um, I'm a very independent person. I don't like asking for help with anything. Um, I guess you could say I'm stubborn in that regard. <laughs> um, but relying on the people around me, which is like, not, like I said, it's not my MO, mm-hmm. um, was like, they carried me through. And I think that like a lot of, a lot of women don't like asking for help, especially when you're used to being like the homemaker and the mother and working and you're juggling all of these million different things. And then you're alone with your thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very easy to get lost and mm-hmm. to feel hopeless. Um, but I think a lot of us would be really genuinely and delightfully surprised in the support that we can glean from the people around us. And, um, you know, they carry us until we can carry ourselves. And that that's my experience at least. So like, I don't know if this resonates with you and do you have to go sleep? No, no. <laughs> but I say like, I'll say to a client, like when they're feeling really just like uncomfortable in their own body. So I'll say to them, what has your body done for you as opposed to the way that it looks, right? So like, yeah. let's say let's say it's carried a healthy child. Or, yeah, or let's say for the, let's say people who haven't had children yet, like has, has it helped you experience pleasure today by eating? Have you gone for a walk? Are you able to exercise? Are you able to move? Whatever, whatever you yeah. can do in your body, N- nothing to do with the way that it looks. So yeah. like you sort of like did that on some level, like both reframing right totally reframed the purpose of my body completely um I I totally resonates with me I didn't think about it in those words but that is essentially what I did I stopped thinking about my body as physically my body and started seeing my body as my life source um and what connects me to my family and um and my children and my friends and everything around me um and that, and then my purpose, my purpose in life, my purpose as a mother, as a wife, as a daughter, a daughter-in-law, whatever, um, is what my body became for. And that, that's what I like strive to recover so beautiful. from. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Um, it was removing the physicality and seeing the emotional and the spiritual. Um, and th- that really like is the essence, I, I would say anyways, of our guff, like it connects us to um, our neshama and it's just like the case for it. Right. right. And you yeah. really like felt like that. Yeah. Like- I, I feel like I had to, because in the darkest days of my recovery, there was no way that I was going. And, and my social worker at one point had said, like, can you look yourself in the mirror and can you find things that you like? And the answer was no, because when you're, like I said, a black, blue, green, stitched up, bleeding drains, there's nothing to find physically that, that I would say, oh, this is like, I still like this about me. I didn't even like looking at myself in the eyes because looking at myself in the eyes would show the emotional downside, what was like hiding behind my eyes and the fear. Right. Right. Um, but then being able, like we said, to to remove the physicality of it and start seeing, like reminding myself why I did this, why I chose this route. And again, that these scars will heal um, and the wounds will go away and I will feel whole again however distant that may have been, um, it, that was what enabled me to turn that corner um, and to you know, continue to put one foot in front of another and heal on an emotional level and a physical level. And, and now Baruch Hashem, I am at a point where, like I said before, I do feel um, for the most part comfortable in my own skin again. And that, that truly is amazing to like have that full circle um, mm-hmm from, you know, not even so long ago, I hated myself. I hated my physical appearance. 
um and and like just not even like I felt like a stranger I was I was stuck in a stranger's body um and now to be where I don't feel that way anymore and if anything it's reinvigorated the relationships that I have with my family um and sort of like set fire in a very good way to all of those things because it's shown me um how important my life is and what I'm contributing towards our family and um all of that fun stuff so that's like so beautiful and I I hope that like for the people who are listening and follow me for what I do is like yes our our body is so important and we have to tend to it and take care of it and, and feed it healthy food and exercise and do all the things that our body needs but at the end of the day it's um really a means to an end yeah yeah, totally. I totally hear. It's definitely, it's a struggle. And I think that's what makes us human. Right. Um, but learning how to fight the fight and become, you know, come out victorious is, is sort of where it all lies. So just to pull it all together, um, sure. you started in Credifall as like a passion project, something to maybe distract you. And it did. It saved me. I, I can tell you definitively. And, and now you still feel like it's like a part of your journey. Now it's like, it's a part of me. And it's also like, how do I just stop? <laughs> how do I just say, sorry, I'm not doing this anymore. Um, there are times that I've had to take steps back with, you know, for recovery, like had a hiccup in the road or anything like that. Um, but yeah, it's, it still is something that brings me a lot of, um, I would even say chizok, like hearing from yeah. different people. Um, and I've we've worked with people who have cancer before and different illnesses and whatever. Um, it does as much for me as I would, if not more than I'd say than us offering the access to, you know, a human hair piece at a low at a low price. Um, at a very low price. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it's part of me now. I like I, I say a lot that incredible like saved me on from a mental headspace. Like in, yeah. instead of instead of breaking down leading up to my surgery um, or even days following, instead of like totally losing myself, I just went to the sewing machine and like every single order is it's a different interaction. It's not like we speak and usually it's me um, to every single person who orders. There's a dialogue there. Mm-hmm. There's there's usually some sort of story um, and connection. Um, and it's been just, like I said, I never imagined that it would be as successful as it is. Um, but it's been one of the greatest gifts to be able to see and to know all of these different people all over the world, um, who for one reason or another found their way towards us. Um, and to, you know, take up time that otherwise would have been spent very nervous or anxious or not being productive or whatever um, and to be able to fuse it all into something that is productive um, and helping women cover their hair in an easier way and in a more affordable way in a more comfortable way um, so yeah it's, it's truly a bracha and, and that's why I said like I'll never forget that Shabbos afternoon because my neighbor still makes fun of me to this day he's like you're such an idiot you could be making so much money off of this and I'm just like I don't need that money that's not yeah. Yeah. I don't need it um, but I do need I I needed incredible I didn't need wow. the money Baruch Hashem. Wow. yeah well, that's incredible. Thank you so much for joining us. My like, pleasure. I'm I, so I have honored. To, I think I have to process this this <laughs> conversation. It's so there's so much there, so so much inspiration and and takeaways and information. And yeah. 
in everything. Thank and you. And also, so much. I'd be happy anyone who wants to speak to me directly. Um, so, you- so could you tell us where we could find you? Yes. So on Instagram, it's at Incredifal. Um, it's I N C R E D I F A L L. Um, my name is Esther Woodruff. So you can send a direct message um, or email me. I can give you, I mean, I don't mind if you release my email address. Okay. Um, yeah, I would be more than happy to speak to anyone anonymously, not anonymously about my experience um, or to send them, you know, towards Sharsharat. We can put their information down too, if you want. Yeah, let's do that. Um, yeah, I would, I, at this point, I feel like if I'm speaking on podcasts and I'm writing articles in Jewish publications and I, um, send me an email, let's chat, um, because there's nothing to hide anymore. And I'd, I'd love to be able to, um, to make the best of an unfortunate situation. And that's sort of like what I've always said about my own situation, um, is that I, I was able to make the best outcome out of a really bad situation that you never want to find yourself in, but should you find yourself in it? Like I'm really, really lucky. I don't even want to say lucky. Cause that like, I feel like takes Hashem out of it. Um, really tremendous brachos to be sitting here and talking about it the way that I am. Um, and it's all, obviously it all comes from Hashem. Wow. Well, okay. <laughs> okay. So thank you so much for joining us. We'll be in touch and I'm going to put all your information in the show notes and yeah, maybe we'll have you on again because this was awesome. (laughs) Amazing. Thank you, Gil. Have a wonderful night. Okay. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you all so much for being here on my podcast, Get Into It with Gila. If you'd like to learn more about what I do and what intuitive eating is, please visit my website at www.gilaglassberg.com or follow me on Instagram at gilaglassberg. Thank you so much. Have a great day.